Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening as together we near the end of another week navigating life during COVID-19. With serious news circulating constantly, some laughter would be welcome. Later in the program, we'll hear from comedy writer and comedian Neil Brennan. Atlanta is home to some internationally renowned musicians. Bass Morris Robinson, prominent among them. He'll tell us why he waited several years to take on the role of Porgy, in George Gershwin's opera Porgy and Bess. First, we'll hear from two other famous Atlanta musicians, much loved for their songs and worldview. The Indigo Girls, the music duo of Emily Saliers and Amy Ray, are brilliant storytellers, and that gift is on vivid display in their new album, Look Long, which comes out today. We are fortunate to have them join us now via Zoom. Emily, Amy, welcome back to City Lights. Thanks, Lois. You know we love you. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's just a privilege, especially as I know you are both taking the time to deal with homeschooling your kids and family life, along with very active music careers. This new album tells a story, beginning with bittersweet memories of childhood growing pains, to calls for social action, ultimately finding its way to understanding what once seemed irreconcilable emotions and experiences. I was wondering, were the songs in this album created as a set with a narrative in mind, or were they written independent from one another? They were written independent from one another. I think um, you can say that Amy and I spend a lot of time together. So we're experiencing some of the same things at the same time, although we 
see through our unique and individual lens and write songs from that perspective, but also, you know, being at the same sort of age range in life and just reflecting on these things. But luckily all the songs when they were put together uh, had commonalities and uh, sort of threads that joined them all together. And then we thought that Look Long was the title that encapsulated some of that cohesion that happened, but it, it wasn't a plan. They just, they, these were the songs that ended up together. Well, it works beautifully as a narrative. And I guess having been together as a duo for, what, 31 years now? Yeah, let's see, since night, well, we've, it might be longer. I mean, we started playing in, in high school in at DeKalb, in DeKalb County at Shamrock High School at the time, and it was 1980. Yeah, you go back as friends 40 years, um, the saying about finishing each other's sentences. I guess as friends and creatives, you do that with one another, and maybe that's why all the songs seem to fit together as a narrative. Amy, I read that the musical inspiration for the first song on the album came from an instrument you discovered in Emily's basement. Would you tell us about it? Yeah, I had written this song and um, Emily and I had gotten together in her basement at her house to like start working on arrangements. And I saw this acoustic guitar sitting in the guitar stand that I had never seen. I thought I knew all Emily's instruments. And I just said, what is that? That looks like a great guitar. And it was a Martin, old Martin set up for a slide. So for acoustic slide. And so she got it out and it became really the musical centerpiece of the song. And that song opens the album. Well, I had written Kickin' and it was really a song about growing up and spending time up in Hartwell, Georgia, Lake Hartwell near Livonia and hanging out at this farmer's house. And he let us ride his horses and we had dirt bikes up there and, you know, just kind of the invasion of the suburban nights into the agricultural area to have our lake culture <laughs> basically I grew up there back riding out on the weekends little partakes if you can catch them you can ride them I said the old man said to us kids I took that and read for the rest of my days I'm a little bit left of the something of the earth not too proud I'll prove my word but I, you know, Emily, I wanted it to be this kind of swampy Southern, I don't know, kind of a romp, but with a slow groove. And so Emily and I were trying to figure out, you know, what should she play on guitar? You know, what instrument? And when we got together at her house, I saw this guitar I had never seen, but it had been set up to play slide guitar on. And I had never, I mean, I know most of Emily's guitar, so I, I was very surprised to see it. And the sound was so perfect for the song that it kind of helped me envision the whole thing and, and you know, made the core, the centerpiece of the song acoustically. And then we ended up 
making sure we flew over without instruments. We didn't take many instruments to England with us to record with because we wanted to save money, but we definitely took that one with us. Let's talk about country radio. This song reveals a complex relationship with the genre of country music. Would you talk about the lyrics? Well, I wrote country radio after I, I, I spent a lot of time in Nashville. I liked the drive um, from Atlanta to Nashville and back home. Always on the way back home, I listened to country music from the time I leave the city until the time I get back to Atlanta. And I love country music. I really, really love the voices of country singers. I love the well-crafted songs. But the truth is that those songs are written by men and women, you know, largely and primarily by men and women about the stories of men and women. And so I found myself wanting to live inside these songs, but I couldn't relate it to my own life because, you know, being queer separated me from that. And so I really got this wistful feeling inside sometimes as I listened to these songs and and couldn't fit my own story into them. And so I decided to uh, write a song about that feeling. And I put the character as a, a gay kid in a small town and described all of those feelings that I myself had. I work at the mall food court. And when I get home, I fix something to eat, settle into my seat, and turn on the country radio. I know every word to every song And they make these lonely nights a little less long Cause then I'm under the stars, regular at the bar Got a perfect girl, I got a warning truck We go down to the river and the moonlight is silver to read that you have addressed self-homophobia in your own life? How is that evident in these lyrics? Well, I think from my own experience, you know, I was not immune to societal voices saying you're a sinner. I didn't believe I was a sinner. I never had any relationship problems, my faith relationship or with my parents or my family. But the societal implications and loud voices that you're a sinner or you're not valid, you should be fired from your job, um, you don't count as much, something's wrong with you, all those things, I was not ever strong enough to not take them in somehow into my psyche. I think a lot of queer people deal with this and it's gotten better through the years, but you know, in the song, it talks about passing the, you see those placards and there's sort of like little marquee things with messages in front of churches and I've seen ones that are totally homophobic and you sort of I drive by it and take that in and and that's included in the song and it's really it's about a person daydreaming that they're that boy about to get married or with the 
with the truck or with the pretty girl, or they're that girl whose dream is coming true, getting married or having this love relationship. And so all those things are, it's very, very difficult was for me to overcome that self homophobia of you're not as valid a human being and you're the milestones in your life uh, don't count the same way they do for straight people. So obviously it's an illness that has to be healed and it takes time, but there is a lot of that in the song. In fact, many of your songs deal with the acceptance of individuality in a world that celebrates conformity or demands it. What is another song on this album that illustrates that theme? Well, the first song that came to mind was Muster, even though it's about those kids standing up against the gun reality in America and the, the common Second Amendment, raise the flag type argument. Yeah, I guess, but like for personal conformity, maybe how the moon, you know, deals with trying to encourage everybody to have their own liberation and looking to the elders for that, looking to kids for that and just saying, you know, we all need to be free from our, whatever the chains are that bind us and, and celebrate ourselves and be liberated. I mean, you know, Emily and I, I think in our lyrics, you can probably find examples of that in almost any song, because I think it's something that we, it's kind of a main agenda, if you will, for us, like is to encourage people to not worry about conforming in any way, you know, and not have to, you can be, you know, it doesn't, whatever your political persuasion is, whatever you are, you know, all the things that you make up who you are, just celebrate them and be yourself and and respect yourself and respect other people and that's how we get along in the world you know and i think we we encourage our audience to you know be themselves and be strong in that and not you know just it's you know let this this a light of mine i'm gonna let it shine i mean that's a basic message yeah you know i think a lot of our songs you can find little lyrics and here and there that that will say things like that because it's kind of a central idea with us
you do it with so much grace. I mean, when you were talking about the suburbanites invading Lake Hartwell, you speak about being an interloper, and it shows such a depth of thought, even with people whom you not only see as very different from yourselves, but who may hold beliefs that are hurtful to you, you're always considering the other point of view. I mean, I grew up in a family where that you had to do that because we, in my extended family and, and in my own family, there were a lot of differences of, you know, view about society. And some of them were very conservative. And so, you know, and growing up in the South, I mean, you always have to consider the other point of view because you, you have, you know, it's a complex place and you don't want to lose your ability to talk to one another and to be neighbors and to love one another. And you have to realize when you are an interloper in someone else's space and their way of life, regardless of what you think of that way of life or what they think of yours. The reality is you, they built a lot of lakes, you know, all over the United States when they dammed up a lot of rivers to make power and which could be a good thing, but also those areas that were once, you know, these agricultural havens and the, became sort of the playground of the, of the wealthy. And so <laughs> I think about that, you know, and I mean, it's like the movie deliverance, you know, it's, it's a, it's something you think about a lot. I think when you live in an area like we do. We'll return with Amy Ray and Emily Saliers of the Indigo Girls after a quick break. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Let's return to my conversation with Amy Ray and Emily Saliers, the Indigo Girls. Their new album released today. The title is Look Long, and the songs display a wide range of influences. The new album seamlessly integrates a number of genres into the style of folk rock music that we have loved, your fans have loved for many years now. Favorite flavor is particularly inventive in that regard. Were you consciously paying tribute to any particular styles or did different influences just kind of bubble up as you were writing this? Uh, I think when I wrote, when I wrote that song, it was just kind of, I was sitting with my kid in, in our studio and we were jamming actually. And that is kind of what came out of what we were doing. 
when I actually finished the song and was trying to think about production because Emily and I didn't have an arrangement for it, John Reynolds had created this beat that worked really well and it immediately made me think of the B-52s, um, <laughs> you know, because of that. I wanted it to be wacky, you know, because the message in it is kind of hardcore and I wanted the music to feel kind of wacky and, you know, and celebratory, you know, and um, so I could have like lyrics sitting in it that were harder to think about and um, definitely paying, tipping the hat to B-52s, no, no doubt about it. I mean, what a great Georgia band. So, and they created their whole own style, you know, and so we definitely were tipping our hat to them. Well, it is so much fun. The title song, Look Long, is beautifully sung and the lyrics seem densely poetic. A reference to Grandfather's Telescope, Through the Scope on Starry Nights We Saw Forever. And in the morning, Florida's sun, I burned the grass with my magnifying glass. How did you decide that this would be the title song of the album? Well, I, one of the hardest things about making an album is uh, naming it. And we always make the decision in, in the 11th hour, you know, but it's, it's often quite handy to pick uh, the title of a song. At least it tells the story of that song. And because given the fact that the, these are a cohesive bunch of songs, it, it really, a Amy thought about using that as the title and it did have obviously so much to do with history and perspective and short-term vision, long-term vision and things like that. So it was uh, in the end a fitting title. beautiful. The text of many of your songs are especially meaningful in this new age of social distancing, life during pandemic. For example, sorrow and joy are not oil and water. Has anything about the album changed? Does anything land differently for you as we've settled into this extraordinary new way of living? 
It's a great question. I think sometimes it takes a while for the songs to have their lives and and you start to live into them, even if you've written them at a different point in time. And because I think that Amy and I write a lot about people and how we relate to each other and how important histories are and uh, communication and uh, the earth and things like that. It might be that any group of songs could could take its place during a pandemic and speak to it in some way, you know? It wasn't as if the songs were prescient in, in, in any way, I don't think, but sitting with them and, and living in them, I mean, sorrow and joy is definitely, I feel like right now, not only in this country, but globally, there's a collective grieving, sadness, you know, tremendous grief over the loss of life and how things, some things have been irreparably changed. And then along with that, finding everybody has their, you know, their hopeful spirits or their, the ways that they've found things within their families or their chosen families or whatever it is uh, that brings them hope and a little bit of joy. So I think holding darkness and light, which is, you know, a clunky way to put it, but it's what that song talks about, sorrow and joy. And I think that that's definitely something that's going on, um, obviously, during the time of the pandemic. I understand that a movie is in the works. <laughs> Please tell us about the Indigo Girls documentary plans. Well, so far we we have so we have an, an incredible group of people who approached us about making a documentary, and we've you know had other people approach from time time and again, and it's never felt right or not the right time or whatever. But these folks were. The producer is an old friend of ours and has made a lot of great films and the director made a great movie that won a lot of awards um, a couple years ago at Sundance and other places. Um, she made a movie called On Her Shoulders, Alexandria Bomback, about a Yazidi woman and everything she went through. And so she wanted to be the director and, and writer and Jessica Devaney and Kathleen Haran as the producers and then they have a great crew. and. We just, we don't know what it's about. We basically just said like, yeah, we can do this, but we don't want it to focus just on us. We want to kind of try to focus it on the context and our fans and kind of the communities around us. And I, I don't know if they're really taking that to heart or not, but they're working on it and they've been filming things off and on for a couple of years and, or like a year and a half, but I'm not sure what's going on now because, you know, the pan, they were going to be on tour with us filming our tour mm -hmm. and, um, now this this is happening and we haven't really done anything around the pandemic and what's going on right now so i'm not sure what they're thinking we we're due to have a meeting soon but um the the director has been i think holed up in like a closet editing the movie for about three months or something to see what she has so far even if it's via zoom we are going to 
be cheering you on that red carpet, (laughs) (laughs) virtual or real. Are your families doing okay? They are doing okay. In my family, my my dad lives here in Atlanta. He's fine. Um, And then my two sisters and their families, they're all, they've all been healthy. And then my wife and I and our seven-year-old have also been healthy. I mean, we've been isolating, so it, it stands to reason that we would stay healthy, but it's something that we don't take for granted, even going out and, you know, having to buy flour at the grocery store. So it's stressful. So, but, but we're all healthy. It's hard to, it's very hard to celebrate that in the midst of so many people being sick and suffering, but it's something that I'm learning at this part of life, how to do, how not to downplay the joys and the, the, uh, the blessings of good health, even in the midst of these other terrible things that are happening. But we, we're all currently well. So glad to hear. I know you're both very busy homeschooling, <laughs> and I bet you have to get back to some of that. I just want to end by thanking you and to borrow a phrase and turn it around. You could not get any closer to fine. I think you two are way beyond fine. You're amazing. Emily Sellers, Amy Ray, thank you so very much. Thank you, Lois. We we really love you so much. We're big fans of yours. I can't wait to give you both a hug when we can do it without seeing each other on screens. Same here. Emily Saliers and Amy Ray, the Indigo Girls. Their new album, Look Long, just released today. In a moment, we'll hear from another homegrown musical talent on the world stage, bass Morris Robinson. This is WABE Atlanta. When the U.S. shut down in March because of the pandemic, the Atlanta Opera was midway through its run of George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. The piece is often called the Great American Opera, yet 85 years after its premiere, Porgy and Bess continues to raise questions about racial representation and cultural appropriation. Bass Morris Robinson sang the role of Porgy in the Atlanta Opera's three March performances. He is an internationally renowned opera singer who happens to live in Atlanta. When I spoke with Morris Robinson in early March, he explained why he initially turned away from the role. When I came into the business early on, a lot of the veterans that had been down this path said, stay away from those types of roles because the natural assumption is you're an African-American, you have a deep voice, you can sing Old Man River, you can sing Porky. And once you've established yourself as someone that does that, no one really at the time had the vision to see you cast as other things. So I stayed away from it for those reasons. 
my issue with it nowadays is not as similar as it was before. I've established myself for nearly 20 years as someone that sings German and Italian repertoire. But now it's about perpetuating stereotypes. It's about images that we don't even try to but need to distance ourselves away from on the stage. There has to be other material that can depict us in a more positive sense. And so I struggle with that. The one thing that keeps me with Porgy and Bess is I love the message. I love the story. I love the character of Porgy because he is the most respected. He is the stalwart of the community. He is the person that people look up to. So there is dignity in playing those types of roles. But I do think that there is a time where we have to say, you know what? we got to find other things. To say that a white guy wrote this story about Negro life, I've changed my mindset about that because in talking with the scholar Naomi Andre, you know, he was Jewish. So he wasn't really favorably upon as much as someone else would have been in the 1920s and 30s. So, but that doesn't mean that it's truly what we are. He did a wonderful job of depicting what he heard and what he saw. And I respect his musicianship and I love the music. But the images, I think, that are being perpetuated, you know, we have to deal with that in a positive sense and find other material that represents us more adequately and accurately and get away from the, uh, the Sambo and all that other stuff, you know. I know that members of your cast, along with Dr. Naomi Andre, the professor who wrote Black Opera History, Power Engagement, had an event at the Auburn Avenue Research Library. I was on the panel. Yeah, so tell us what came out of it, please. Well, I think what came out of it was very much what I talked about just now, uh, an awareness. But the most important thing that I think people that sit in the seats need to understand is that I didn't come from the 1920s, 1930s, the 1950s, and the transformation that we have to go through to place ourselves mentally, characteristically into those positions is tough. It's a huge journey to go from that to this. And I often walk around Atlanta, I ride through with my dad and see things that he couldn't do, restaurants where he couldn't eat, places where he couldn't go to school that have been available to me. And it's like, I always walk around with this wish factor, like I wish I knew what it was like to do that and how I behave differently. I get a chance to do that on stage and I, I can't behave like I thought I would because I have to act within the parameters of what's been written. So, you know, the psychological journey is tough even to get to that characterization on stage. So. I think that's very interesting for people to understand that, you know, we are not robots. We are people with emotions and sensitivities. And in order to become what you enjoy on stage, it takes a tremendous mental transformation. Let's talk about the music. Every tune in this opera is memorable, dare I say, unforgettable. And it's no surprise that jazz, pop, and classical artists have recorded songs from Porgy and Bess. What are the musical high points? I can't think of one thing that says that I love more than the next. I mean, every time you hear one, first of all, it starts off as summertime. Hard to beat that. You know, it's one of the most beautiful, most lyrical pieces ever written. And we all know it from Nina Simone to Sammy Davis Jr. to Frank Sinatra. Everyone has done that tune, I mean, even jazz instrumentalists. So it sets the tone right there.
but you got a woman is a sometime thing. You got it ain't necessarily so. You got best you is my woman. You got I love you porgy. How can you forget that? The hits go on and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. So I think I don't have a musical highlight. I think that I just enjoy the wave of the process. Even on stage, I enjoy hearing all these things, you know. Best you is my woman. Favorite moments, though, I will say, is when Bess sings the reprise of Summertime in a different key. Because at that moment, you know, she has really transformed from being what she was at the beginning of the opera to being a mom. It's always stage where she's by herself and she's really just kind of in that moment. I think that's the most beautiful moment, singularly for me, because of course I'm also standing off stage ready to kill Crown at that moment to kind of solidify that which she's already claimed. So that to me is the most powerful moment. The playwright Lorraine Hansberry noted that African Americans have suffered great wounds from great intentions. Does the music of Porgy and Bess heal some of the wounds? I had a colleague tell me that for everything that happens in your life, there's a line in Porgy and Bess that can relate to it. And because of that, I don't know if there's healing, but there's certainly relatability. Not to just every line, but every character on that stage that has a part. You have Serena, who is the the backbone, the religious matriarch mother figure who lost her husband, but she's very religious, and she kind of holds it together. You have Mariah, who isn't taking much off of anybody, and she's kind of the enforcer type. You got Porgy, who's the cerebral, who's the leader, who's the man, even though he's crippled. You have Crown, who's kind of the bully and the jerk around, but he's part of the community. You have Sporting Life, who's kind of the weasel. You got Bess, whoever loves and embraces, who goes through a journey, who comes back, and actually it's part of the church and part of the religious services. It has a huge journey. You everyone on that stage with any part. You have Jake, who is working really hard because he's going to send his kid to college, and he's saving that money right away. We know that guy. We know his wife. We know the kid. You know, we all have those things to relate to. So I think that the element of humanity that is displayed in this opera, coupled with the beautiful music, makes it attractive and makes it relatable to a, a vast amount of people. So that's the beauty in this show. Bass Morris Robinson, he sang the role of Porky in the Atlanta Opera's production of Porky and Bess this past March. You're listening to WABE Atlanta co-writer of Chappelle's show and comedian Neil Brennan released his Netflix special Three Mics in 2017. The show was surprisingly raw and revealing. Brennan addressed his struggle with depression and his abusive father in addition to 
telling stand-up jokes and throwing out one-liners. I spoke with Neil Brennan in late 2018 when he performed here in Atlanta and asked about the unusual design of his show on Netflix. Basically, the premise was I had three microphones on stage, uh, one for stand-up, one for kind of one-liners, and one for uh, what could only be described as emotional stuff. Yeah, very. And uh, and and it was a, I think it was a, a mix. So I would alternate. I would do 10 minutes of stand-up to eight minutes of emotional stuff, a minute of one-liners, and like just repeat that. I repeat that three times. And it was a nice, I think it was an effective sort of format. People really liked it. And every day I get, because I talked about clinical depression, I talked about unsatisfying parental uh, relationships. And every day I get some kind of message from somebody on online saying how much it meant to them or how much it helped them or whatever. So that's been very gratifying. And also people people think it's funny too. All of the above. You've said indeed that Three Mics was the most successful thing you've done on your own. What do you think accounts for how well it connected with the audience? How well you, you know, connected? The there's an old saying or phrase uh, that I that I used to bring up fairly often when I was doing Chappelle Show with Dave, which is the depth from which something emanates in you is the depth to which it travels in the audience. And I would say that it emanated from me on a pretty deep level, yeah. if I can be so uh, pretentious. And uh, and it, so it, that's where it got, you know, it emanated from me in, in uh, subterranean level four, and it <laughs> got to the, the audience's subterranean level four as well. No, I don't think it's pretentious at all. There were times when I found myself feeling anxious and and getting worked up hearing <laughs> your description of depression. Yeah, you know, that's funny. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't have anxiety for the most part. I, I depression, I absolutely have. It's just kind of a low grade chronic depression. Anxiety, I've had right around the time I did, I shot three mics. I started having panic attacks, and it was awful. And that's a thing that I have way more sympathy for now. Panic or anxiety disorders are, are they were foreign to me, so I uh, they probably felt worse. But man, did that feel because that's like I was immobilized. Well, and they also exist on a continuum. And the, the description of your depression, Neil, was stunning. Hearing you Thank speak, you. absolutely stunning. And hearing you speak in such vivid detail is so powerful for those listening. I wondered what the impact was for you to be delivering it. I guess it felt clarifying, you know? It was almost like a in a courtroom where it's like the, before they sentence, there's like the sentencing statement from the uh, defendant where he'll go like, look, Your Honor, da 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 and then he'll just explain. That's kind of how it felt. It kind of felt like, Okay, let me just explain what how I experience depression. This isn't everyone's experience, but this is my experience and and hopefully it's clear some things up. And that's a that's a thing that people have also said is it made them feel less alone, but also made their husband or their girlfriend or their wife or their friends 
uh, understand them better. And hmm. that's great. Like, that's really great that, that someone goes, oh, okay, now I get what you're saying. Hmm. Well, when you said that's why you're grateful for jokes, grateful mm-hmm. for jokes, that just spoke volumes about why your talent has been such a lifeboat, you know. Yeah. Where and am- everybody, you know, in my case, it's jokes. And in, in, for instance, hip hop artists, it's it's rhymes or it's beats or or if it's a painter, it's it's ideas for you know concepts for for paintings or whatever. So everybody's got their own oxygen source. <laughs> well, on on a lighter note, because there's a whole lot that's just rip roaring hilarious. <laughs> um, I loved your take on Lance Armstrong. Yes. That he ultimately he raised some he raised a hundred million dollars for cancer, so he basically did drugs for charity. <laughs> um, in essence, which you know happens fairly often. One of my favorite lines was what you said about tanning salons. Uh yes. If I were black, I would stand in front of tanning salons all day and laugh at white people. <laughs> um, why yes. the, why are tanning salons legal? Why are they legal? Why uh, why shouldn't they be? Because of because they're carcinogen. Yeah. Well, that then that, that's going to be a long line. You're going to have to get bacon in that line. Bacon's a carcinogen. Oh no. Um, what else? Uh, like a lot of drink, sodas, cigarettes, of course. No. Okay. Okay. But, you know what I mean? Yeah. I just I don't get tanning slumped. Do you really think Pope Francis is hardly even Catholic? Well, now that I've seen how he handled the uh, the the abuse scandals, it turns out he's quite Catholic. <laughs> you can say <laughs> this because you were born. Yeah, Catholic. well, I was raised Catholic. Yeah. Yes, and um, very intriguing your your idea of ending racism by ending race. Yes, the we're never going to end racism. It's pretty basic tribalism, meaning just it's we're America's like the kind of the first integrated country for the most part i mean like not uh, i'm i'm kind of overstating it but but where it is truly like a melting pot where it's just all kinds of people uh whereas if you watch the olympics it's like if you watch the athletes from china are pretty much all chinese and we could go down the line so but racism persists we're the only country really trying it racism persisting and so i think the only thing that's going to end it is if we just all have sex with each other um (laughs) And and uh, and as I said in the special, and I'm calling dibs on Asians, um, which is not to say, to my black and brown sisters, that you're not included. Uh, well, um, the it, the part of the three mics where um, I saw your acting prowess uh, was this very clever personification of testosterone. Yes. Uh, I think that that has been pretty clearly illustrated by some of my comedy brethren, uh, what the kinds of things testosterone will make us do. I think testosterone is just a bad, it's most of, as I said in the special, most of what it wants is illegal. It's against the law. So, But it's also like a galvanizer in that it's probably the same thing that took us to the moon. I mean, you know what I mean? Like in small doses, great. But in large doses, highly toxic. Well, I think as a male, it was very generous of you to own up to that. 
Oh, you're uh, that's is that how low female standards have gotten? <laughs> that you're just happy that I admitted it. No. That I'm sorry. And I'm sorry. I thought we were making progress. Doing those, I mean, one arm push-ups too. Yeah, huh? How did, about it? Did you have to rehearse for a long time? I didn't. I actually wish that they could have been more convincing because it was sort of like that when you do a show. You don't know how stable the uh, the the stool is, so it's kind of hard to know. So that was a new stool, oh. and uh, and so I didn't really know how stable it would be. Otherwise, I would have liked to have put more pressure on it. Something especially hilarious in Three Mics also was your remark about the female build, that if you told an architect how to build a woman, they'd say it's not yeah. safe. Yeah, it's not. It's a bad design. To, I mean, it's a great design. Ladies, don't get me wrong. It's a great design. But in terms of like, even if you look at like uh, track and field, right? Yeah. You look at male bodies, it's a pretty straight line. And the female body is like, it's curved and your thighs are rubbing. It's just not aerodynamic. It's good for birthing a child but but in terms of like getting away or just running or i mean it's again it's like big in the middle and then like you have small feet so it's like well that's not very helpful okay that point in three mics just made me open my eyes wide and say to myself what is his creative process neil that was i was watching track and field and i thought (laughs) I thought these women don't have a chance. <laughs> That's the only joke Michelle Wolf has ever said she's jealous of me for. Oh. Michelle is like, oh, I wish. I, she's like, I think about that joke every. There's certain jokes that when you write jokes, you'll come to somebody else's joke every time. In when you're writing comedy, you just like Michael Che always says, like when he writes sketches for Second Live, he'll just come upon a sketch that me and Dave did on Chappelle show. Like, <laughs> like you just go like, ah, oh, and then I'll, ah, they did it. Like you just, you, you think you've got a new formula and then like, ah, oh, they already beat me to it. But when do such ideas come to you? I mean, other than, okay, you were watching a track meet. So is this just random? Is this how you go through your waking hours? Do you carry around a little notebook? I have a thing I've just used Evernote on my phone and, ah. uh, it's an app that I do not know. Yes, we are 21st century. Yeah. Yes. And that I was watching track and field, had the thought, and then I kind of thought, like, it's a crazy design. It's like the women's bodies are like that art museum in Bilbao, Spain, like, <laughs> where it's just like, a, what are you, what? <laughs> like, this is not, it's great. It's, again, huge fan, ladies, but in terms of, like, the things you want, it's a little unwieldy. You got to wear strap. You got to strap yourself in every day, like you're like your evil Knievel, with the bras and the sport. I mean, it's just wild. Comedian Neil Brennan, his stand-up special Three Mics, is streaming on Netflix. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 10. Monday at 11 a.m., we'll bring you a Memorial Day special about Armed Forces Radio and music during the war in Vietnam. Our theme music is The First Time, 
Written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. And do listen to our new podcast wherever you subscribe. Here's wishing you a safe and good holiday weekend. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.